So a few days ago, Louise Burns, I don't know if you recognise that name, went into Claridge's with her newborn baby and fed her newborn baby in Claridge's, whereupon a waiter, an anxious waiter, hurried over to her and flung a napkin across us, lest anyone should see some stray boob. And then in that same week, Nigel Farage, never one to avoid controversy, um, he said that breastfeeding mothers should feed their children in a corner of a room so as not to draw attention to themselves and so as not to embarrass other people. And then yesterday, there was a protest outside Claridge's. Did you see it? Women feeding their children, breastfeeding their children. <laughs> Hooray for those women. Um, right on the pavement of Claridge's. I love that kind of spirited conviction that they had that says there is something good and precious here. There is no shame. Here is joy and delight in these children. I thought about that as I was thinking about Elizabeth and who Elizabeth is, this sort of bit part in the Bible, sometimes easy to sideline. Often I preach Elizabeth or I read Elizabeth through a lens, a particular lens, and that lens is of waiting and longing, an elderly woman who can't have children and who waits and hopes and longs. Now, that's true. That is one lens to see Elizabeth by, but something in this passage that we have today reminded me that she too is a spirited woman of conviction, that this passage is about saying there is something good and precious going on here. There is no shame anymore. There is joy and there is delight. I'd love to invite you to join me in looking at Elizabeth through this lens, a Claridge's lens is how I like to think of it. And to ask ourselves, what can we learn from Elizabeth this morning? What does she have to teach us? What does she say to us in our Advent as we wait and look and long? And what does she say to us in our lives? Let's catch up a little bit to where we are in the text. Some of us will have read this over and over again, and some of us will hear this for the first time. Let's just take a moment so that we're all in the same place. So Luke chooses to start to tell his story of Jesus Christ by talking about Jesus' family, his extended family. It's very human, very natural to Luke. So he starts by talking about Jesus' cousins. Last week, Dave told us about a man called Zechariah, a priest, who is elected for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the most holy place in the temple where he has an encounter with the angel Gabriel who tells him that though he and his wife are far too old to have children, they will nevertheless have children. And such is his response to the angel that the angel effectively shuts him up for months. He's silent. He can't speak. That's the story we have from Zechariah. That's where we finished last week. And now we have Elizabeth's story. Elizabeth, this woman who has been waiting to have a baby. And we pick up the story at the moment where Mary, the mother of Jesus, pregnant with Jesus, who has already encountered the angel Gabriel herself, has gone to visit her cousin Elizabeth. 
Why? I don't know. Maybe for comfort, maybe for companionship, maybe because it's deeply embarrassing and shameful to have a baby out of wedlock. But she's gone anyway, somewhere to the Judean hill country to hang out with her cousin Elizabeth for a few months. I find this very moving, this moment. There are not many moments in the Bible where the focus is on two women, just two women. That's rare. And in this moment, God is deeply revealed. So the first thing I want to do is think about what Elizabeth teaches us here in this initial moment. And it's this. Elizabeth has something to teach us about how to transform a hard thing into glory. How to turn a hard thing into glory. Last week we heard that Zechariah was a priest and he and Elizabeth could not have children. And that for him was a source of shame and embarrassment. Children, particularly sons, were seen as a sign of God's favor in that time. So to be a priest... And to not have God's favor through children is a source of shame. What have you done wrong that God would not bless you in that way? What don't we know about you? Even though we know that they are righteous, faithful people. Well, if you can imagine the shame of Zechariah and then multiply that by about a thousand, you have the shame of Elizabeth. Because to add to Zechariah's shame is Elizabeth's own noble birth. She is from the line of Aaron, which means she's from a priestly line, descended in that way. So there's more pressure and expectation on her to have children than there might be on someone else. So there's another little weight of shame and pain. Then let's add into this that if you can't have children as a couple... The fault lies entirely with the women. Isn't that lovely? The fault lies with the women. So we hear in the Bible that it's Elizabeth who's barren. She bears the responsibility for it. So the burden of sorrow and shame gets greater and greater. I cannot begin to describe to you how difficult, how painful, how eroding, how isolating her life will have been, faithfully trying to walk God's ways, And daily, daily, daily being disappointed that the promise was not fulfilled to her, that she would not have children, that she was viewed with suspicion, with mistrust by the people around her. Sometimes when I read Bible stories, I read them quickly, like they're a comic strip. And if I were to do that here, I would think, "Uh uh-huh, well, she suffers a bit, granted, but then she gets what she wants. She gets a baby. So it's all all right, isn't it? She suffered for a while, and now she's okay. Shut up, Elizabeth. No more moaning. Actually, there is more to this than we see. Firstly, there was great shame in not having a child. And when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant, she says, the Lord has taken away my disgrace. So she does have this sense that shame has gone from her. And yet... Something highly unusual and miraculous has happened. A woman who is well beyond childbearing years is now having a baby. That draws unwelcome attention too. That's embarrassing, that's awkward, that raises unusual questions also. It's not completely smooth sailing. But also added into this is the fact that Elizabeth and Zechariah are both old. 
they are old enough to know or to suspect that they will not have the joy of bringing up their son into adulthood. They will not see him fully grow. There's some historical evidence to suggest that their son, John the Baptist, was raised in an orphanage by a Jewish sect, that he didn't have his parents. So there's a little bittersweet moment in the joy, isn't there? It's not unadulterated pleasure and delight. Everything is not okay. You have the answer to these prayers, and yet you also have the sorrow. You also have the grief. Elizabeth's life is hard. Elizabeth's life is full of pain and heartbreak and disappointment, and we can't sweeten that away. But when Mary comes to see her, when Mary comes pregnant with Jesus, Elizabeth knows. Elizabeth is the first person in the Bible to recognize who Jesus is. That's cool, isn't it? I I forget that. Elizabeth is the first person to see that Jesus is there and he is the answer to all the things that they have prayed, all the longings that they carry, the longings they carry as individuals, the longings they carry as a nation of Israel. Hope for freedom, hope for healing, hope for reconciliation, hope for release from oppression, hope for light in the darkness. She sees it and she rejoices. She says, blessed are you. And blessed am I that I get to see the woman who is carrying my Lord. That's how we know she knows who he is. Blessed are you who believe that his promises are being fulfilled. She gets it. She sees it and she rejoices. Elizabeth has this great capacity for joy even after years and years and years of eroding heartbreak, disappointment and sorrow. I think that's a huge test of faith, isn't it? How do you keep your heart open to the possibility of joy when lots of life is tragic or evil or full of disappointment, full of wounding? Sometimes when I talk with my friends who aren't Christians and are baffled by my faith, they'll say, I do not know how you can believe in God when the world is so full of pain and darkness and suffering. And all I can say is that I can't fake it Like Elizabeth, you can't fake that you believe and you can't fake that everything is okay. The reason that Elizabeth rejoices so spontaneously is not because she is stoic beyond all other women. It's not because she is braver. It's not because she put on her game face and she doesn't want anyone to see her sad. It's because she has had an experience of the living God, of his love, of his mercy, of his kindness, even in the midst of pain. And she hasn't just had that crisis, she's had that day after day after day. She has rooted herself in the love of God, so that even in the midst of pain, she has the capacity for rejoicing. Life is hard, maybe for lots of us here, Maybe there's illness or loneliness, as Mark prayed earlier. Maybe there are things that are unanswered or unhealed, things which cause us great pain or anxiety. 
Maybe we often wonder if God has abandoned us, if God is really good. We're not called to fake it. We're not called to put a game face on and be brave. We're called to live like Elizabeth, out of the truth that we are known and loved by God and to let that sustain us through our lives. Elizabeth somehow teaches me something deep about transforming a hard thing into glory, about taking the heartbreak of the world and not denying it or ignoring it or suppressing it, but saying in the midst of it, I see the living God at work. I see that Jesus is here. So that's my first lesson. I think the other thing that Elizabeth teaches us is to speak up, to shout. The stories of Elizabeth and Zechariah really sharply contrasted. So the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and tells him this amazing thing has happened, this miracle, his wife will have a child, and then he has to be silent for months. Elizabeth encounters the living God and she just spews forth with praise. I was telling the 9am congregation this morning that I, um, I've misread this passage um, over years and maybe with my tendency towards sentimentality, which I do have, I have put this little scene in soft focus. I've made it a little Jane Austen moment and I have these two women floating towards each other in long dresses and clasping each other's hands and saying, oh, my cousin, my cousin, um, blessed are you, blessed are you. And it's all very twee and nice. But actually, if you read that text, you see how she says, in a loud voice, she exclaimed, in a loud voice. And if you read the Greek, it's actually meant to be like a sort of megaphone, a mega voice, a yell. She shouts it out because within her is rising up this knowledge that here is hope, here is healing, here is freedom, here is love, and she cannot contain it. It just pours forth out of her. I'd love to be Elizabeth in most instances in my life. I am much, much more Zechariah. I'm often silent. The other day, um, I got in a cab, and um, I'm always getting in cabs because I'm always late. So there is a formula to cab conversation, which is always, no matter what time of the day you get in a cab, they'll say, is that you done for the day then? Even if that's 10 a.m., I was saying, what? Who finishes at 10 a.m.? How wonderful. But no. So he said, is that you done for the day? And I said, no, I'm going to a meeting. And then he said, what do you do? And my heart sank. And I said, I work for a church. And then he said, I have always wondered, I have always wondered if there is something more if there is more to life than this. And inside me, I felt, I felt this sort of burn. And I wanted to say, I can only tell you what I know. And what I know is that there is more to life than this. I know that I have found through Jesus Christ hope where I didn't have hope before, freedom from things I never thought I would be free of, healing from things that have hurt, and I've seen healing for other people. I have seen my life transformed and I have seen other people's lives transformed. I think this is good news for the planet. I think it's good news for you. I think God wants relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants to love you. 
He wants you to be with him. I said... <laughs> mm -hmm. I wish I were like Elizabeth. I wish I shouted out the good news. I wish it spilt forth out of me because not even my fear, not even my terror that they'd think I was a Bible basher or some raving religious lunatic or someone boring or someone with prejudices that I don't carry, not even my fear of all those things would hold me back. That I would just shout out what is good and true and brings me life. And if I can't use words, then I pray that I will shout it out with my life. I pray that I will love people with kindness and compassion and tenderness and mercy so that people look and see something. I pray that I use my money and my time with generosity and sacrifice and prophetically. I pray that I live on the earth in such a way that it says, this is precious and I need to steward it well. And I'll give something up in order to do it. I want to shout with my whole life like Elizabeth does. Maybe you want to join me. So Elizabeth teaches me to speak up a bit, shout it out. Elizabeth tells me how to transform a hard thing into glory. It's funny having this reading, as we do, because it's quite curtailed, it's quite cut in a way that maybe you wouldn't have it if you were reading it for the first time. And if you have come to church for the one and only time in your life, you might go away thinking, this is the end. And um, maybe at the end of this, after this amazing greeting from Elizabeth, so she says, blessed are you among women, blessed is the child you carry, highly favoured am I, blessed are you that you believe in the promises. And then Mary maybe at the end says, well, that was lovely. Thank you very much. Cup of tea? No, she doesn't. Mary breaks forth into song, into the song that we now call the Magnificat, into a song that we say every evening, if you say evening prayer, that you sing in beautiful choirs with the most exquisite music put to it, words that are deeply familiar, words rooted in hundreds of years of Hebrew praying, words that pour forth out of her. It seems to me deeply important, not just for Elizabeth, but also for Mary, that they have this moment of meeting and that Elizabeth's praise, Elizabeth's shouting out her megaphone voice is releasing praise in Mary, is releasing something in her, is enabling Mary to be fully who she is. I find that much of what I imbibe from the world, much of what I absorb, um, is fairly individualistic, fairly focused on just you, on what's going on there. I don't know if you've ever been in the St. James Centre and felt your soul sap away, as so often happens, but I've been in there and there are these posters that say, the St. James Shopping Centre is all about you. And I think... That's not very subtle, is it? It's not all about me. It's all about me spending my money in the St. James Centre. But I am told over and over and over again that it's all about me, and gradually I start to believe it. It's all about me. And not only do I believe that in a sort of consumerist way, I start to believe it in my spirituality too. I start to 
sort of translate some of that individualism into my own spirituality. So it's about my Christian journey, it's about my growth in God, it's about my faith, it's what I believe and don't believe, it's what I can live with and can't live with, it's what I choose to do and don't do. Oh, Elizabeth teaches me so much about the call to recognize the work of God in someone else and to release it. It's not about Elizabeth, although she sees the privilege. It's about Mary and seeing what God is doing in Mary. And not just in that moment, not just it's amazing you're pregnant, but here is the big picture of history being played out in front of Elizabeth and she's able to see it, not just able to see it and inwardly think, oh, that's nice, but actually to mark it, to shout it out, to proclaim it, to draw Mary's attention to it. We were made not only to recognize what God is doing in our lives, but to see what God is doing in other people's lives. What a privilege. What a delight. And here's the really important thing. is that Mary changes through this process. When the Archangel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to have a baby, we don't know much about her. We don't hear that she's the holiest woman. We don't hear that she's particularly righteous before God. We make those assumptions, but we don't know that. And she just says very meekly, let it be to me according to your word. That's all she says. But when Elizabeth releases praise in her, when Elizabeth speaks words of truth and calling, then Mary rises up with a song that will endure through history and that says God is on the side of the poor and the powerful and the vulnerable and it will always be so, no matter what his people do. It's a transformational moment for Mary. When we are obedient to God and proclaim praise, we release other people to be all that they were made to be and called to be. Mary is growing into who she needs to be to be the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth teaches me to recognize what God is doing in other people, to proclaim it and to release it. So may we learn from Elizabeth today. May we be encouraged by her story. May we see her in that line of Claridge's women back, spirited women of conviction. Her name means God has promised. God has sworn or God has promised. So may we know when we are living with our own difficulty and pain, our own hard thing, And hoping and praying that we can turn it into glory, he has promised he is with us. And when we are living, burning with the good news and struggling not to be Zechariah in that moment, may we remember he has promised and shout it out. And when we are living with jealousy or smallness or an inability to see, and we long to be able to call out gifts in other people and release them into who they were made to be. Remember, he has promised. And the one who promises is faithful.